When Kristen Smedley's two sons were born blind, she had to give up her dream career of teaching third grade and figure out how to survive an unknown world. After figuring out how to raise children without sight, Kristen dedicated her life to making sure no other mom has to sit isolated in devastation over a rare eye disease diagnosis. And she is on a mission to change the perception of what it means to be blind. In 2011, Kristen launched a nonprofit to fund research for children living with the rare eye disease her sons have, CRB1LCA slash RP. She has done a TEDx talk in New York City to change perceptions of blindness and recently published her first book, Thriving Blind, Stories of Real People Succeeding Without Sight. Kristen is a popular keynote speaker with her message, I'll teach you to see, set extraordinary expectations. Join me as I interview Kristen and learn so much about her ability to not only help her children survive living with blindness, but thriving and going on to do great things. Are you a businesswoman or entrepreneur who is transitioning into something new, into the second phase? Are you trying to figure out how to create an audience, how to grow a presence online, but you're stuck on the tech and the how-to? You have no idea how to attract new clients into your business? Don't worry. I am gonna give you the exact blueprint on how to connect and grow your audience and attract more clients. During my brand marketing strategy sessions, we are going to go through the six pillars of success for your brand. The six pillars of success include online marketing, storytelling, relationship building and client connection, differentiation, personal branding, visual branding, and genuine networking. Sit with me for an hour and let's transform your brand strategy. Or do you learn better in a group environment? Join me along with five other women just like you and collaborate and mastermind together in one of my popular mini brand mastermind sessions. In two one-hour sessions, we will go through each of the six pillars of brand marketing success. There will be time to focus on your business and time to learn as we focus on the other five participants' businesses. We will run a mini mastermind group the second and third Wednesday of each month. Check the website, www.therobingraham.com for details. And I'll include the link in the show notes as well. Hello friends, welcome to the second phase podcast. I'm Robin Graham, your host and a brand marketing strategist and photographer passionate about helping women connect and grow their audience and get more clients. I am so excited you're here with me today to chat all about branding, personal development and life overall in this second phase. What is the second phase? The second phase for me was a change in careers and learning how to navigate a new world and build the business from the ground up when I was actually terrified to put myself out into the world as something new. For some, the second phase is a significant lifestyle change, a traumatic loss, a move, an illness. It could be any number of things. No matter the definition of your second phase, we are here together to learn about creating a brand that stands out and makes an impact and grow as our authentic selves and follow our callings, our passions, our visions, and our values. Now grab your cup of coffee or the dog's leash and let's dive into a new episode. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to the Second Phase Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. Well, it's, this is super fun because we're used to being on the same side of the microphone, so to speak. So it's, <laughs> it's extra special to get to have you actually answering the questions from me instead of us answering or asking the questions together. So this is pretty cool. Yeah. Awesome. We're not like trying for mic time. We get to, it's like a uh, both sides of the coin here. It's great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're no competition here. <laughs> so um, tell us, will you please tell the listeners a little bit about you? So I'm a mom. 
something I wanted my whole life to be. It's my number one job, my most favorite thing on the planet, usually. <laughs> I have three teenagers, <laughs> so I say usually. New mom of rescue dogs. Again, I love that, usually. I need a soundproof booth because of those dogs. You never know if a squirrel's going to go by. Um, I run a, a nonprofit organization that I never exactly thought that I would get into something like that, and it's taken off and um, has been an incredible learning experience. And and through and through in my heart, I'm a I'm a teacher, teacher and a Philly girl. That's that's my my thing. <laughs> Well, and you've had quite a journey and that word teacher or the role of teacher has been something that you dreamt of from what I understand your whole life and then you accomplished it. And when we talk, we talk about, about your about second your phase, we'll talk about how you have continued on that journey of being a teacher, but just with a different population and a different audience. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy journey. You got to buckle up people. Yeah, Grab some buckle coffee. Up. Buckle up. Yeah. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about your first phase now that we're, we've already kind of given the goods away. So, you know, I was one of those kids and I would imagine you probably were too, Robin, that people always said, especially my parents, you know, you're, you're gifted, you're talented, you're blessed, you're a leader. Like I, school was easy for me. Um, sports were easy for me for the most part. I just was, I, I excelled at most of the stuff I did. And, and I, you know, a lot of people said, of course, this was, you know, I'm, I'm 48. So uh, back in the day, there, there wasn't necessarily a bazillion career options like there are now for women, but I just had this knack and love of teaching, probably because school, it was a successful place for me. And I, I was very comfortable there. But I, I have four brothers and I used to sit them in little chairs. I can remember it. And we had like this chalkboard on the back of my dad's workshop door in the basement. And I would make them sit there and listen to whatever lesson I was giving them. It was hilarious that their wives should be very grateful of the patience that they have now anyway. But um, I just my whole life knew that teaching was for me. And um, I went I went to the, the school in our area that was known for if you're going to be a teacher, that's where you went. And, um, and then finally, you know, graduated, had a bunch of student loans, but landed the job and, and was loving my career in teaching. And you taught third grade? Yeah, third grade. You know, it's so funny, your story about teaching your brothers. My sisters and I used to play school and sometimes the neighbor girls were there too. So it didn't <laughs> matter, but we had some of those old fashioned desks. I don't know where my dad got them. Probably one of the schools was getting rid of them. So he took them and <laughs> we would have a classroom set up in the basement. Same exact thing. We had the notebooks, the pencils, everything. Uh -huh. And I was always giving instructions. <laughs> I loved it. I, even We had the ones that it, the top didn't lift up. You had to reach your yeah. hands in, yeah. you know, yeah. scratch yep. your fingers and all and get all this stuff, you know. I was just doing a speech the other day with to a bunch of teachers and I'm like, I was that I go, I still love to go in staples and I I'm like I smell those supplies and I'm like in heaven. It was so funny. <laughs> so there you were teaching third grade. Life was fantastic. It was exactly what you had dreamt it would be. And mm -hmm. then you became a mom. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden. What happened? All of a sudden, as I was, you know, I also, in the meantime, had the big wedding, had the husband, got the house, got the car, you know, and as I was walking out every morning to all the sprinkler systems going off at the same time and thinking I have the greatest life ever. And then Michael came along and at four months old, incredibly unexpected to me, a doctor said, your son is blind. And, you know, you know, when, when you're pregnant with your kids and, and, and as your belly's growing, you know, all those hopes and, and those dreams that we have for them are growing, right? And you start out with like, oh, he's going to like, you know, probably play a little peewee soccer. And then by the time nine months hits, you know, you have him as the champion goalie, the football quarterback, like summa cum laude, this kid is going to be the greatest thing ever. And then, you know, to hear your son is blind. And I, I was just like, my, my, I've come a long way, but my first question was, um, how blind, like, is he going to play baseball? That was my first thing I wanted to know. Like, it, I guess it's all relative. Like how much is my world upside down? Doctor was like, Nope. I'm like, you know, is, is he going to have enough vision to drive? No. I was like, what is he going to do? 
you know, and it was like, uh, it was like the, the, when those um, blinds that or the shade, when you press the button and it's just going down, 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 everything, football was gone, valedictorian gone, regular school gone. And then he was saying things like Braille and the white cane. And I literally just kept sinking, sinking and sat on the floor. And, um, and the way that he equipped me with walking out of that, that exam room with my son was good luck. That's what he told me. Good luck. I mean, 20 years ago, there, there wasn't Facebook to find other people. There wasn't uh, the big internet, you know, to, to go Google. There was no Google. Um, luckily, he did send me, he said, well, if you want to like pursue this further, you can go. There's one specialist in the world. And she happened to be in Baltimore and we were living in Chicago at the time. And we went and saw her and thank God she knew about one other family that was starting to organize information for families. And there was, remember the old listservs on email? Yeah. They had one yeah. listserv that you could write in messages. And I spent about two weeks not sleeping and just was on that listserv. But I tell you what, that was, it was one of the worst things I ever did because it was all a pit of devastated moms that had no, it was hopeless. It was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. So that was where I began. You, you tell the story, I've heard you tell the story where you, the only association you had to blindness was Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. Can you imagine? Like, you know, and those of us that grew up with it, that, that, that was my point of reference that I think was made it, it probably would have been better if I didn't have that one episode in my mind where the girl, Mary goes blind and then they ship her off to the school for the blind. And then I was remembering the episode where the school the school for the blind caught on fire. Like, could they make it any more horrific to be blind in that? I love that show. But it, all of that was what was playing my mind. It would have been better if I had zero point of reference, you know, and just tried to figure it out from there. But I just, but I think, well, I don't think. I know that, you know, the surveys are that blindness is the second most feared thing next to death. Second most feared thing. And, and there are a lot of people and this is, this is so bizarre to me, but there's a, it's not bizarre. I started here. So many people think that it would be better if your diagnosis was that you weren't going to live that long as opposed to living your life without sight. That's the perception in this world. And that was mine 20 years ago. So it was not a good start. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about here. Cause what you just said is, is profound. And I think it's really important for people to realize that there's no reason to have those thoughts now. Like you, and mm -hmm. you have changed the course of blindness for the majority. Like anybody who has read your book or has come in contact with you has been blessed with new insight that anything is capable. And just watching your boys and everything they've accomplished, especially your oldest, and we'll dive into that a little bit later, mm -hmm. but it's remarkable how much people can do without sight where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. 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 You know what the problem is that the, our perceptions are so bad because we just don't understand it because we rely so heavily on sight. But when you really, it's not even dive in. If you get to have the incredible blessing that I do to watch both of my kids and how they navigate a day, that's where I, that's why I want people to see them all the time because even my family that doesn't see them all the time gets devastated all over again. But I'm like, watch, watch how their brains work differently at a higher level than ours. Watch how they, they don't have a better sense of hearing. They have a focused sense of hearing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of times where Michael and Mitchell will say vision is, is the handicap because it distracts people from critical thinking and problem solving and, and really listening. I mean, my guys can tell in a handshake meeting somebody if they're trustworthy or not. And, and that is nothing about, I used to think they're missing all the social visual cues. They're not because we're giving off all of ourselves, not in the visual, our, our, I should say our authentic selves in the non-visual and they right. get to pick that up. Yeah. That yeah. Kind of it's amazing. Yeah. Well, the heightened senses and, and like you said, the focus. So there's a statistic I've heard you say, and I'm not going to remember it off the top of my head, but when your boys first started or were getting ready to go to school and you were navigating all of that, mm -hmm. you had the statistic and it was, what is it? 72% or is it more that of blind people will not find work? 
or oh 70 percent of the blind community is unemployed and and that's a number that you know i know people think well there's a handful of blind people there's the um the american foundation of the blind reported a few years ago from the cdc 21 million americans are considered blind or visually impaired 21 million 70 percent of that population is unemployed. And I got to tell you, can you imagine in this day and age, knowing that number, if that was women, if it was minorities, if it was other communities, the outrage that would happen. There's no outrage. There's no outrage, which is what's kind of pissing me off a lot. Um, and there's a lot of different facets. It's probably a whole nother podcast we could dive into about that. But um, yeah, I found that out. I mean, Michael was was I couldn't figure out why he sailed through preschool. We get to kindergarten and they're saying he's only going to find his cubby 70% of the time. Those were the learning goals that that was a hundred percent for him. I'm like, man, these people say they're the greatest school district on the planet. And that's, that's what they're thinking is get them over that hump, brought in some role models, inspirational stories, blah, blah, blah. And then slammed right about middle school, I guess, is when I found out the unemployment rate. And I was thinking, and my son was gainfully employed in sixth grade as a, uh, in a band. He formed a rock band and they were doing gigs around town. He's had a job since sixth grade. I mean, I'm like, wow. And it has, but see, people think that that statistic is that blind people can't do things. Mm-hmm. Blind people can do more than, than most sighted people. It's employers afraid to hire them. Oh, it's going to be so expensive, you know, and look, no, no disrespect to all of my peeps in the disability community, but for blind people, you don't have to put in a ramp. You don't have to make, put in an elevator. You don't have to do any building stuff. It's, it's maybe a computer program. And most blind adults are coming to their careers and jobs with their, all of their equipment they already own, you know? So it's, it's a perception issue, hundred percent. Yeah. So that brings me to what your work in your second phase has been because you have been working very diligently and aggressively to increase the awareness of blindness and the resources that are available. And not only that, but advocating and then also getting out awareness and raising money for research for rare diseases, especially rare eye disease in your case. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting too. So, and this is a, an interesting point that, that I think it's important for your listeners to just keep in your mind that when I started the second phase, it, it's, it's flipped now it's, it's, I've soared and it's been amazing my success, but I'm, I did a 180. So I'll, I'll back up and say that, you know, back in 09, we found out the actual gene causing the malfunction, causing the blindness. At the same time that we found out the gene, which took nine years, it doesn't happen that way anymore, but it took nine years, um, the major media outlets were reporting that here in Philly, there was a gene therapy clinical trial underway to reverse blindness in one of the 260 genetic causes of blindness. Um, And I was, if we're being perfectly honest, I was still, when Michael was nine years old, I was teaching my boys to thrive every day, getting them all the the tools and resources to succeed as a blind person. But I was praying every single day that we could reverse it every single day. Um, I was not in full acceptance at all. And um, which is okay. I mean, I give myself some grace now. I'm I'm a mom, right? You know, we want our kids to, to have the easiest path possible, right? So I did start in 2011 funding research a very specific small research project for gene therapy for our gene CRB1 in the hopes that that would lead to reversing blindness. And I was so nervous though, because I had raised my boys to that point, you know, it was kind of like a fake it till you make it. I kept telling them every day, you're not broken. You're not broken. Don't let anyone tell you you're broken. So then how do you turn around and say, Oh, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to work on fixing it. (laughs) Saying you're not broken. I'm like, God damn. So then I spent a year. This is like, well, this is where I'm I'm like you, Robin. I researched for a year. I talked to to, um, school psychologists, principals, everyone that works with kids. How do I communicate this after I've had this message? Every single one of them came back to me and said, I don't know, but you have figured it out so far. (laughs) Good luck. One more person tells me good luck in my life, right? So I sat them down and I was like, look, you guys, I understand you're not broken. I don't have a problem with blindness, sort of. Um, But I have this opportunity. What do you think? 
and they were so little and they were like, of course you should go for that. Their thing was, mom, if you could give us an option, we would like the option and then we'll decide. We would love an option for sight. Um, if, it, if it works, it works, go for it. And, and it took me until about a year and a half ago to really have that message from them sink in. And that's where things really started to take off. So I really had to think about, you know, this isn't in the blind community. The one side says, if you're working on a cure, you haven't accepted blindness. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? But the other half of the community says, if you're not working on a cure, like you're just being pathetic and that's all you want is to, you know, it's like a, it's this horrible paradox of the blind community and they're very siloed in their opinions. Um, well, and I, if there, if there wasn't that significant statistic of unemployment, I would say, oh, sure. You're just being disrespectful uh -huh. for the fact or not accepting the fact that blindness is blindness, but there's a real quality of life issue here. If the rest of the world isn't accepting this population and helping them thrive. Exactly. And that is the bridge that thought that sentiment exactly is the bridge between the two siloed opinions. If it were a perfect world and everyone had the right perception of blindness, a cure is not as important. It's, it's irrelevant. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's irrelevant other than, you know, Michael had always talked about he wanted to be a pilot, like those kinds of maybe a dream, but what kid really gets to grow up and accomplish every single thing, you know? So yeah, if, if, if perceptions were great, all that research wouldn't be necessary. So then it becomes like, okay, well, where do you focus? Where do you focus? So we made sure about maybe a year and a half, two years into the foundation, the, the nonprofit, I get the phone calls every day from these moms getting the diagnosis and I I'm holding their hand and, and drying their tears every single day, but they were all sitting on the couch waiting for the cure. And I thought we're going to perpetuate this horrible problem of, of the unemployment of illiteracy and all of that. We are actually, we are giving that one camp, fuel for their fire that this is not the way to go. So we split the focus, which all of the little rare disease organizations, most of them will say you're nuts. Don't, you can't split your focus. You have minimal resources, but we did. <laughs> and that's why I color my hair every couple yeah. of days, you know, it's of a course gray. You did. But um, I, I thought there's no, I wasn't going to run a patient organization, just research and not support them. That wasn't fair. Um, and actually then it just became, that was the best thing we ever did because I can wake up every morning knowing that I'm serving my boys and therefore all of the patients with full respect. Um, because honestly, my work is to get an option on the table for sight while also working on changing perceptions. And then my hope is, and I'm actually at that point, um, I have one of my boys is interested in sight and one isn't. And you know, Michael is so, I just watched him speak at this big pharmaceutical thing. And I, I mean, I'm proud of my kids every minute of the day. I was proud of our entire community and everyone that has done anything to, to back my philosophy, to give my kid an opportunity, um, to teach them anything. Because Michael stood there and said, here's a day in my life. Here's everything I accomplished with all the technology. And I'm doing well enough sight would get in my way. I'm not interested, but I respect all of you that are working on it. Um, and Mitchell is interested to do a few things that require sight. So I think, you know, and I know that that's hard. One of my friends was upset. We've raised $1.4 million and she's like, you've dedicated your life to this and he's not interested. I said, but as a mom, don't you think that's the most success you could ever want that your kid is so comfortable in their own skin? They're good to go. And there, and he's, incredibly grateful he's grateful he's kind um and and i think that has a lot to do with he's been shown so much kindness and and opportunity and all of that and he projects that back into the world it's cool so, to follow him around oh it's remarkable he's amazing <laughs> i just <laughs> i love that kid <laughs> i could only hope that if something like that happened with my kids i would be as good of a mom as you've been with them because they the sky is the limit like they don't know i it, and i know michael more than i know mitchell but michael mm -hmm. knows no limits and i think that speaks volumes because so many people are handed 
diagnosis or go through catastrophic experiences that they don't know how to handle and they kind of curl up in a ball and give up. And you wanted to do that in the beginning. Oh God, I did. I did for a while. And Michael kind of changed your perspective. And you realized if he could be happy, then you could learn to be happy too. And that's, I think, when you dove in and really started researching and getting the tools and everything that they needed to be able to thrive. Are you looking for unique gifts for the special women in your life? Moms, sisters, friends? The second phase Etsy shop was created with gift giving in mind. Visit the shop to purchase beautiful note cards for every occasion that after your special someone reads the personal note from you, they can put the card in a simple frame to display in their home. A gift that keeps on giving. The second phase features my original art photography that I personally selected for you. Another great gift idea is a journal. These journals are beautifully crafted with sturdy covers with my fine art images on them. We created the pages lined on one side and blank on the other for those who like to doodle, write in free form, or draw as part of their journaling practice. At the second phase, we believe in creativity as a tool for living a purposeful and meaningful life and want to share our creations with you. Our products are great for teacher gifts, Mother's Day gifts, birthday gifts, and just little happy gifts and inspiration. Are you feeling extravagant and want to treat yourself to some art? Check out our beautiful line of fine art prints. They help any room in your home feel special. To access the Etsy shop, visit my website, www.robingrahamphotography.com forward slash shop. Or you can go straight to Etsy and just search the second phase. But keep in mind, there are no spaces. The second phase is all together. We hope you enjoy the shop and all of the products we've created, especially for you. Another way that you have advocated. So first of all, tell everybody what the name of your foundation is. It's the Curing Retinal Blindness Foundation, crb1.org. Okay. And because I want to emphasize that. And at the end, I'll, well, you've given the link just now, but um, <laughs> people can donate at that link as well. And we'll put that in the show notes. Oh, cool. But Thanks. The other thing that you've done is with your book and you've taken stories and this took a considerable amount of time, but you've taken the stories of people that inspired you to then inspire Sorry. your kids and give them more opportunities than what they would have had otherwise. So tell everybody about the book and what your mission was with the book. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, that day in the exam room here at Children's Hospital in Philly, that that guy, that doctor, I give him all the forgiveness and grace in the world. What did he know back then? But when he just said, good luck, what I really wanted, what I needed was somebody to hand me, which is how the book started, a pamphlet. Just give me a, a one sheet that says this sucks at the top. However. Here's this person, this person, this person. Here's what they're doing now. And here's how they did it. Contact them here. That's, that's, I mean, like just that. So, so I, you know, 20 years goes by and I, I won off this whole thing. I, I go to this conference, meet this one mom. I, I meet this blind mountain climber. I meet all these people. And that's where, I mean, people say, you're a great mom. You did all this. No, I didn't. I went and found the people. And honestly, you referenced the moment when Michael at three years old changed my perception. That was in my tantrum of a quote prayer tantrum of, I can't do this. And then when Michael came in and said, isn't this the best day ever? And I realized that he had not had, he didn't have a problem with blindness. I, my prayer changed to, you better send me everyone that I need because I can't do this. And all of these people have come into my journey that are succeeding without sight, doing things you could never even imagine. Some people just, you know, um, leaving a law career to be a stay-at-home parent. How many sighted people you know? Do, I mean, people do that. And this is a blind person that did that. All these journeys that are just like sighted people, but they're doing it without sight. So, you know, I, I decided to create that resource because it's what I wanted somebody to hand me. And then, you know, I talk a lot about, um, as I've, I've, I've been asked so many times, how did, how did you do this? You know, where did you, what do you have in you? What was your background? And I'm like, it's, it's not me. It's role models. That's why I feel like role models are so important, positive and negative. I mean, we watch our kids, whoa, 
some of the people that they're exposed to and, and are constantly following want to be like, you're like, are you kidding me? And it influences them. Well, I wanted mine influenced, you know, in the, in the way of unlimited possibility and stuff like that. I, I joke when I, when I talk in speeches about, you know, and that it, it's an age old hero's journey story in every hero's journey. There's, there's the, the role model that comes in, like, you know, Luke Skywalker had Yoda and Obi-Wan and, and, um, what's the, the Lion King Simba had Mufasa, you know, I, I joke that my daughter had Carly Lloyd, you know, and Abby Wambach. She got to see them on TV, which I didn't have as a kid. What does a blind kid ever come in contact with as a role model? So then as I went out and found those folks, um, and I realized the power of that in, at six years old, six years old, and Michael's was small for his age. So he was this little peanut at six, meets Eric Weinmayer, who had just come off of summiting Everest that most sighted people will never do. And he's completely blind. He comes off Everest, meets Michael, and he's cool and he's funny. He is 1000% everything you want your son to grow up to be that kind of man. And his journey, he's very open about, he hated blindness. He hated going blind. And then he surrendered and look where his life is now. He's gone on to climb all seven summits. But um, my point is watching Michael at six years old meet this guy, in Michael's mind, and this is why I, I know that he has no fear of going out in the world and achieving, because he met someone that superseded anything any sighted person was ever going to do, and he was just like him without sight. And his personality is a lot like him. So there's, you know, there's his Yoda. At six years old, he meets him, and he wanted to be just like him, which he's a guy you want your kid to be like. And, um, and I, that changed the trajectory of our entire lives. If you ever meet Eric Weimer, talk to him. He's so just like this cool guy that you can sit and have a drink with and hang out with that you, you don't even, it doesn't even like your mind is like, oh my God, this guy has done all this amazing stuff, but he's just a normal, regular guy. And that was the goal then that was set for me in my mind of my kids that they were going to have every tool and resource so that it just leveled the playing field and then let their personalities and their drive and whatever they're going to have go for it from there. So the book is a summary of lives of successful people who are without sight. Yeah. Yeah. It's 13 of the people that we've met, um, including the mom that a mom that I met at the very first conference I went to for blindness. And I, in the intro, of the book, I walk the readers through that, literally walking into that conference that was into my nightmare, um, the importance of facing your fear and just getting educated to get the hell out of it. Um, and and the, the mom that I, I so infamously, my question when there was a Q&A with these, this very successful blind son, everyone's asking about how much time for Braille and what do you think about audio learning, all this literacy and, and independence and all. And my question was, when did you stop crying every day? Michael was so <laughs> little. And I'm like, I, I am in like the trenches here. I can't even think about Braille. I can't stop crying every day. And one of the most profound things in my entire life that I ever heard was from her when she said, um, Kay Leahy is her name. And she said, um, you're gonna, she said, I don't know what it's going to be like for you. Everyone in this room is going to have a different moment, but there's going to be a day that you're going to get to the end of the day and realize you didn't cry. You didn't think about blindness being devastating all dang day. And then that day will turn into a week and then a month. But then the most important thing she said was, but she said, look at my son. You just watched him up on stage. He's accomplished. He lives on his own. He's in DC. He's on Capitol Hill. He's very successful. And she said, every now and again, I got a sucker punch to my heart about, and it's something that he can't do with blindness or something I have a pity. And she said, I let myself have the pity party and then I move on. It was the most amazing. And she's another person that's just like, when I asked her if I could interview her for the book, she was like, really? <laughs> what did I, what, what's so profound that I'm doing in my life? I'm like, are you kidding? You changed my life. Like just, you know, just being a mom, you know, a mom conversation. And she didn't think it was any big deal. And look at the impact it's had. I think that speaks volumes for when we go through anything in life to share that experience with other people. I think we're given experiences, good or bad, to then take them and use them to help other people. 
Oh my God, you have to can that, you have to put that everywhere on a, on a, a sticker in your journals, everywhere. That, it's almost like, it's like that's the heart of human connection. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do have to share because somebody somewhere is going through that. And what a difference it makes to know that you're not by yourself. So Kristen, you, you started the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. You are now a public speaker. You are a mom. You've raised two, three kids, two blind sons or two sons that are blind. And then um, your daughter who is sighted. So you've had interesting dynamics within your own home and your own environment. Yeah. Um, what are some of the mistakes you made that you would, that you've learned from that you could share for other people who maybe you're experiencing a diagnosis like what you got or, um, you know, some catastrophic or tragic event within their family and they're experiencing all these things and they, they don't know what to do or where to begin. Like, what are some mistakes you made that you could guide them to say, don't do this. Here's what I learned from what I did. So you could try that. God, that's a brilliant question. Um, there's two big things that I would say right off the bat. And the first one is, and I, I, I want to, get next to every single parent on this planet to have them understand that one of my biggest mistakes was holding on to my dreams for my kids. And if I've learned anything in this journey, the number one thing is get your dreams off of your kids. I mean, it's okay to kind of, I guess, imagine and wonder what they might do. But the fact that we keep putting them on these paths that we want them to accomplish what we want instead of backing up getting them what they need. Like I say, get them what they need and follow their lead. Let them level the playing field for them with the tools and resources and let them go after their own dreams. It saves you so much agony. And I was in agony that my kid wasn't going to be the baseball pitcher. Even when they went and won baseball championships, both of my boys, for the first season for each of them, I was frustrated that I would never have a pitcher. Who the hell cares? that they were never going to pitch what they did in terms of changing people blew what nothing against pitchers. I love baseball pitchers. Dear God, I cheer them on, but it, it didn't, it paled in comparison to what my kids accomplished on the baseball field. Um, That's number one. And then the other big thing is I was, I failed my kids miserably for a few years because I hated Braille and the white cane, the two biggest tools that are their reason for success right now, besides their, you know, emotional and social development. um, I hated them. I was scared to death of raising a blind kid. So I didn't want the in your face stuff that said he is blind. Sounds ridiculous coming out of my mouth now, but you know, it was 20 years ago. Um, I, and even in my divorce and, um, you know, losing a job, those kinds of things, I was so scared of other people's opinions and and my dreams coming to an end um fearing the unknown that i didn't make a move to go learn the things i needed to learn like in my divorce i had to learn pay the bills and run spreadsheets shoot me i hate those things right but i had to get the (laughs) spreadsheet to work i had to run the formulas stuff i hated and was fearful of had to manage the bank account like so my point is step into the things, get to know the things that scare you the most. And I promise you that the fear suddenly gets eliminated, extinguished for the most part, because you're get, it's, it's that unknown. It's the things that you're uneducated about that you fear the most. Get to know them, hold their hand, and then they have no power over you anymore. And that, that's for the most part. I know there's extreme situations where that's impossible. Um, but those are my two biggest things. Get your dreams off your kids. See what it is that they want to pursue. And then um, get yourself educated when you're in a situation you don't want to be in of either how to get out of it or how to turn it around. And turn it around for your benefit, but also to then be able to serve others through what you learn and experience. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Gosh, when I think about where I was, and that's the other testament to the fact of if you think you can't do something, I always say, I want people to remember my face. I was crying on my couch every day for three years and thought, there's no way I can do this. Michael is 20 years old now. 
He's at Penn State because he was bored at a small private school campus, even though he recorded an album with a band and released it in Nashville, made Dean's List, all of that, goes up to Penn State. He's trying to get involved with the football team. He's got two majors, two He's living the life of his dreams without me standing there holding his hand, you know? To think that that was able, and Mitchell's following suit right behind him with a whole different, <laughs> Mitchell's so different from Michael. <laughs> oh, the things that that kid is going to do with his life. I think that, I think he's going to be the one that buys me the beach house, but I don't know if I'm going to be proud of, of what he, how he gets there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you might not want to sleep in that beach house. <laughs> oh, he's going to have a heck of a lot of Twitter followers. Uh, he's hilarious, but I don't know how proud that his granny's going to be of what it is that he's hilarious about. But anyway, uh, I give, I got to give Mitch more credit. Oh, he's starting to work his charm to get the stuff that he wants. But anyway, my point is if you think you cannot possibly climb that mountain, or figure something out. Trust me, it's figure outable, and and you surround yourself with the right people and get the tools that you need, and and that mountain is no problem. So I would love to hear because I know faith was part of your journey, mm-hmm. um, and I mean you've threw temper tantrums at God as well as prayed <laughs> to God, but <laughs> I think it all comes full circle, right? He gave you the gift of Michael, so now he's got to help you with him. Yeah, um, right both of the boys actually. So I know that this year you're working on a faith-based talk and I would love to hear what that is going to entail. I've been privileged to hear you speak a couple times, but the biggest one was in Nashville, Tennessee. And mm-hmm. of course you have to forgive me because I always forget the organization you were speaking for, but it was a room filled with a thousand people standing ovation and it was so inspiring. Um, so I've heard your your story. I've heard your um, overarching message for the general population and for the scientific population. What is your message going to be coming to that new platform? So it's actually a a deeper dive into that moment of surrender. You know, I I am able to, in the like you said, in the scientific community, and that was um, Association of Clinical Research Professionals and even the teaching community, talk about my journey and I, and I talk about my change in perception was in my moment of surrender and then I have to move on. But this one I get, to, I just did it at, at a, um, at Villa Joe here in, in Bucks County, a Catholic high school. I did it for the first time with a, with a, you know, I mean, it's a Catholic high school. It was so incredible um, to be able to go into, I, you know, what I want people to understand is yes, I grew up in faith and I'm so grateful now that I did. I was not necessarily, you know, as a teenager and having to be at mass every single Sunday and going all through Catholic school and all of that. I didn't appreciate all of the tools that that was going to give me for this journey. Um, so I get to, to do my whole journey of being raised in faith and the tough part, when I was looking out in the crowd, I'm like, oh my gosh, are there really devout Catholics here? Because I'm going to piss them off for a second. When I say, you know, when that diagnosis hit, I walked away. I sat on my couch for three years and walked away from my faith because I was like, what kind of God does that? What kind of a God puts, you know, somebody at such a disadvantage in this world? Um, luckily, I had that, that 28 and a half years, 29 years of faith to be able to come back to, to make sense of it um, in that moment of surrender and say, fine, you know, and that, that's how, that's how I roll with God. I'm like, oh, okay. So you're in control and you, this is going to be for good. Great. I'm out. This is all you now you show me. And I was hoping for him, you know, I wanted to prove him wrong. See, I'm turning it over to you. It's still going to be effed up. And that's because you suck and I'm going to continue walking away. Right. And then when I watched, and saw everything that opened up and everyone that's come our way because of a God that is extraordinary and, um, and yeah, orchestrated this whole thing that Michael was not at a disadvantage. Michael has the advantage and finally opened my eyes to that. And I get to dive into that um, and walk people through that journey. Like I've been where you're at. If you're in hateful mode, I've been there. If you're in celebration mode, I've been there. And the cool part is I do it all around. Have you heard that song that I will be done? Yeah. So, and I didn't know that that was, um, she's from Lady Antebellum. I had no idea. And then, and I just love the song and it, ca- it actually carried me through my divorce three year saga. Um, and I, it wasn't even about 
blindness for me. But that's how I go through my faith journey with everybody on that. Thy will be done. And then we celebrate at the end of the speech. Um, and I, and I have the song in there while I'm talking. And when I did it on Villa stage, you know, I was talking to our buddy Chip when I was down in Houston, I'm like, Chip, I know I, I get, I get riled up during speeches, but this one was like, and he goes, were you floating? And I go, I was floating. I was I've like, got chills. <laughs> I came into it. Like I've never come into something like it's a message that had to explode out of me and they have a new sound system and everything. So it was like, Die. and I'm like preaching during the song. Oh my God. I had the best time, but yeah, oh, that's awesome. Cool to get my whole faith journey to people that are, are receptive to it, you know? Well, it's pretty cool to start at that level too, the high school students where they're going to, they're going to go through a journey similar to what you went through, yeah. you know, like right now they're kind of hating it They're <laughs> They have religion every single day. <laughs> I mean, I remember being there, you know, and you, yeah. You and that's what I wanted to do. It. I wanted to put it in a frame of reference of real. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, you know, like your garden of Gethsemane, how many times you hear that stations of the cross in the Catholic church at on Holy Thursday. But if you can't, I never made the transition to my life. And I'm like, oh my God, that's what he was doing. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, Jesus did it a lot nicer than I did. You know, he wasn't spitting nails and drinking cases of wine, even though he could turn anything into wine, you know, but um, I wasn't as glamorous and eloquent. However, that's translating it into the real life. This is what it looks like. And man, if somebody would have done that for me in high school, that, hey, Kristen, this is what this, you know, do it this way. And this mm -hmm. is what surrender is like. I probably could have saved myself a hell of a lot of money on bottles of wine and, and therapy, but Hey, you live and learn, right? You live and learn, you live and learn, but it's a great message for people to learn and for people to hear. I think, you know, even as an adult, my faith is, is, is stronger than it ever was, but there are those times when you get frustrated and you question. So mm -hmm. I think it's, it's a powerful message and it's great, especially for young people to hear that it's not always smooth sailing. Yeah. And you know what? I really did learn because like today, Michael has this opportunity of a lifetime. One of his biggest dreams is a possibility and he's got to go into this interview. And, and I've asked people to just pray that not necessarily that it works in Michael's favor. Cause I don't know if that's part of the plan. I just want those people to see Michael for Michael and not see disability, just possibility, and then take it from there, you know? So mm -hmm. I've realized how to put things in a different perspective. And like Mary Fran says to not not be married to the outcomes. It's more about the process and perception and, and the other pieces of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great message. So what is your overarching mission at this point in time in your life and your career? Honestly, in a very short nutshell, it's changing perceptions of blindness. That's, that's, that's short and sweet. That's what it is. And you're well on your way. <laughs> With lots I of think. help. <laughs> okay. So now for a couple of fun questions, what is a book recommendation that you have for the listeners? Um, Touch the Top of the World by Eric Weimer. He's the blind mountain climber that I referenced. He's written a bunch of stuff, but that was his first one. And it's not necessarily about blindness. It's about when you're in the pit and something has been dealt to you that you just cannot handle read his book. The first half, my mom was upset that I recommended it because she said it's excruciating, but you have to go through the first half of his journey to appreciate the second half. It's unbelievable. That's great. And I will put the link to that book in the show notes. And what is your favorite quote? Oh, you know what? I was trying to decide between a couple of them, but I think for everything that we talked about right in this interview, the best one to, to have people go look up, and I may screw it up, is Ralph Waldo Emerson said, um, our chief want is for someone that will inspire us to be all that we know we could be. Mm, I love that. Yeah, it's, um, that's why I've focused my life on this whole role model thing. Oh, I love that. That's a great one. A lot of great messages here, Kristen. <laughs> You're good at this. This is a great conversation back and forth and sparking all the stuff that I really want people to know. I mean, we can, sometimes I get into the weeds of the how, but this is, I just want people to know these messages and this is great. Well, and I think it's important for people to understand your why too, because I don't think your, your message and your mission are going to be able to be accomplished if people don't understand where you started and why you started. So it, we kind of came full circle. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I think that's easier for people to, to relate to, 
that mm -hmm. I sucked at this at first. You know, sometimes people look at me and they're like, huh, Kristen, I'm not even going to attempt because I could never do all that. I don't have that many hours in the day. Wow. I didn't start out that way. I was terrible, you know? Yeah. It takes a, and it takes a village. I mean, you had a lot of support. Your parents mm -hmm. were always by your side, which is, and you have a lot of good friends and that's important too, for people to realize like you can't do it by yourself and nobody expects you to. No. And you can, you don't have to do it. I mean, my parents are not college educated. They, they don't have bazillion dollar jobs there, but they're there and they have, they have cheered me on my whole life. You know, they're the kind of people that you walk in the room and and they light up like Maya Angelou said that one time about parents, you know, that their role is to really, you know, inspire you and be there and guide you and all that. And my parents have done that, like without even knowing who Maya Angelou was. That's just how they are. And when you can be like when you think about it, as a parent, you have to do all these things for your kids. God, if you're just there and listen and cheer and guide, that's all they want. Everything else falls mm -hmm. into place. Yeah, we get a little absolutely. hung up on all the other things, but. Yeah, that's really the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. So where can the listeners find you, connect with you, learn more about you? So everything I do is is in a hub at kristensmedley.com. And I always say I'm Kristen with two eyes. I'm an I-N. Um, and then I'm all over social media for the most part as Kristen Smedley on, on, I would encourage everybody to take a look at our Facebook community, though, community that's thriving blind. And you can follow along all the stuff my kids do and people that are in the book and goofy stuff that I do um, to keep people smiling <laughs> and goofy stuff she does. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're the nonprofit organization. Say that website again, just so it's, in case uh, they miss it. Yeah, it's CRB1, the number one.org. That's great. Kristen, thanks so much for being here today. Cool. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap, friends. Thank you so much for listening today. I am grateful to have you here with me. If you enjoyed this episode and found the information helpful, will you please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating and review? That would mean the world to me. It will also help others find the podcast. I really look forward to getting to know my listeners. Will you please connect with me on Instagram? You can find me at the Robin Graham. You can also find me on Facebook and LinkedIn as Robin Graham. And I invite you to join my private Facebook group, The Brand Marketing Insider. Please spread the word about the second phase podcast. Until next time, remember to smile.